the book of James uh, is written by James, uh, which isn't too surprising. Right there in verse 1, it tells us, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. Uh, this James, there are many Jameses in the book of, uh, in, the, in the Bible, and this James in particular uh, is believed to be the brother of Jesus. Uh, James, the brother of Jesus, wasn't a disciple of Jesus. Um, the one time he's kind of mentioned in passing, uh, they were trying to get Jesus out of <laughs> the limelight of him claiming to be God, and they're like, no, no, just, you know, come back. <laughs> Let's, let's do what we're supposed to do and stop doing that. It's not until after the resurrection that James, the brother of Jesus, became a follower of Jesus. Um, but that's not how he describes himself in uh, verse 1. Uh, and that's not uh, how he describes himself in verse 1 is a bondservant. A bondservant was somebody who was a willing, lifelong servant of another. That is somebody who... Uh, in the Old Testament times, they had a, a means by which if you were uh, indebted and you couldn't pay it back, you could sell yourself uh, to somebody as a slave for a temporary period of time. And if at the end of that period of time, you're like, you know what, it's much better to serve you and <laughs> to be a servant in your house than it was for me to be on my own and have to take care of my own needs. And they could, uh, there was a provision in the law of God to become a bondservant, which was somebody who willingly became the servant of another for the duration of the rest of their life. And uh, in the New Testament, it is a term uh, which the Apostle Paul uses of himself uh, frequently, and James here also uses of himself. Uh, so rather than saying, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, I'm not sure if you were, you know, a sibling of Jesus, if that's how you would introduce yourself. Yes, I'm Jesus's brother <laughs> or sister. Yeah, that, that would be quite the introduction. Um, but how he related himself to his uh, brother, uh, in, in that sense, it was as a bondservant of Jesus. That is somebody who willingly and for the rest of their life will serve him to accomplish the will of another because of the care uh, that he would receive from him. And so uh, this letter is written uh, from a bondservant, uh, but it's written to uh, who he describes there at the beginning of verse 2 as my brethren. Uh, notice there at verse 2, the very first part of it, he says, my brethren. And so this is a letter from a bondservant to brethren, from a Christian to Christians, from a believer to other believers. And uh, that's important because uh, the first main point I have for us is that the normal Christian life includes trials. Uh, he's going to talk to believers about what it means to be a believer. And a lot of the book of James is going to be uh, an explanation and uh, an application of a lot of what we find in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount uh, is uh, more than likely a collection of Jesus's sermons. Uh, can be found in Matthew chapter 5 through uh, the end of Matthew chapter 7. And a lot of what James has to say uh, it comes from the Sermon on the Mount. And we'll, we'll kind of make notes of that as we go through the book of James together, but uh, the Sermon on the Mount was written to disciples, to followers of Jesus, of what they should expect um, should be the normal life of following Jesus. And so James, writing what is probably one of the earliest letters written in Scripture, uh, is just explaining how to live the Christian life. And it's kind of uh, his perspective and a reflection of uh, Jesus' explanation of what the normal Christian life should be. 
And the very first thing he addresses, uh, of all of the things that he could address, is trials and uh, tribulations and hard times. Uh, notice that at the very end there of verse 2, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Uh, there are two key words in that. Um, the, the first, obviously, being trials. And those are you know, the hard things that we would tend to avoid uh, that are typically end up being good things that, are, that you know, produce good things in us and through us, as we'll see uh, how he describes these trials later. But the second key word is the word when. Notice there again in verse 2, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Uh, it's not an if you fall into various trials, it's a when. Uh, and typically we're in one of three spots when it comes to trials. We're at the beginning of a trial, uh, as I feel we are now as a fellowship altogether. Uh, we're at the end of a trial that we're thankful is over, or we're in the middle, and there's a trial coming that we're completely unaware of. And uh, we're in one of those three spots typically. As a fellowship, I would say we're at the beginning of a trial we're painfully aware of and wish wasn't there. Uh, and yet here it is anyway. And the right response, according to James, in the normal Christian life, uh, is not one that we would normally expect, but that we should be expecting trials uh, is something we ought to have in our mind as far as trials in the normal Christian life. Sometimes we think about the Christian life from an Americanized perspective, uh, whereas if everything is good, uh, then everything, I, I'm good with everything. <laughs> and uh, that's not how uh, the Bible uh, explains it. Uh, Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, uh, tells us this. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Uh, just a few weeks ago in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, we were reminded that um, of the trials of many faithful people, uh, the summary there in uh, Hebrews 11, 36 and 38 is, still others had trials of mocking, uh, mockings and scourgings, yes, of chains and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented, of whom this world was not worthy. They wandered in the deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. Uh, these were people who were faithful to the Lord, whose life was hard. And it was hard because they were faithful, not because they were unfaithful. Sometimes uh, the hardness of our life is because we've made poor choices. <laughs> and that's, that's something different. Uh, but sometimes... It's because we've done the right thing, the right way, that things aren't going all right. And that, that's what he's talking about here when he's saying to rejoice in trials. And uh, trials are common to living on earth in a fallen creation. And Jesus said in uh, John 16, 33, in this world you will have tribulation. Uh, that's, that's just living on earth. That's not living a Christian on earth or living unchristian on earth. That's just living on earth. In this world, we will have tribulations. We will have hard times. And so to equip ourselves mentally with that is good and healthy. To know that uh, various trials will come. It's a win and not an if.
the second point I have for us from verse 2 through 8 is three questions. (laughs) Do what now? Joy in trials, but how? That's the official point title if you're taking notes. (laughs) Do what now? Joy in trials, but how? Notice what he tells us to do, counting trials as joy. Uh, What he's not saying here is to be a sadist and enjoy pain for the sake of painful things. This is not what he's saying. Uh, This is more like uh, exercise uh, in that uh, it's hard, but it's going to produce something good. And he's going to define that for us in a bit. Uh, But again, uh, both uh, Peter and Paul and even Jesus all said the same thing with regard to trials and our emotional state being joyful. Uh, So Peter, again, he says, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9, he says, I will rather uh, boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Uh, Jesus, again in John 16, 33, he says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So even though it's chaos on the outside, there can be peace on the inside, and that peace ought to look like having joy and rejoicing in the one we have, who is the Lord. How can we do that? Well, it's knowing uh, what it is and knowing what it does with regard to the trials. Knowing what it is. Notice what he says there in verse 3. He says that our trials are a test of our faith. Verse 3 again, he says, Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. He's still talking about trials, but now he's saying the testing of your faith. And that's where we're questioning what it is that we believe, if it's actually something we can follow through believing. Is this really what is going on? Is this, do I really trust that this is happening, that the Lord has got this? And so he describes that the trials as the testing of our faith. Uh, Pastor Art is fond of saying there can be no uh, testimony without a test. The testimony comes after the test. And you get the testimony because there was a test at the beginning. And you can say, this is what the Lord has done. Uh, And I know, uh, as uh, someone who's walked with the Lord for many years, that if you've walked with the Lord with many years, I know this about you. You have a testimony of a time when your faith was tested. And you can say, I couldn't do it, but God did it in me, and God did it through me. And that's a good testimony. That's a testimony worth sharing in times of testing especially if somebody's going through a test for the very first time. I was fellowshipping with some, uh, a young couple this morning whose baby is uh, currently teething, and that's the most amount of pain that baby has ever felt their whole life. And they wanted to let their parents know at all hours of the night, <laughs> this is the worst thing ever. There is nothing I could possibly imagine that's worse than this. Uh, and then at the other end of life, I'm I, at work sometimes, and I'm you know doing some physical stuff, and I look down, and I'm bleeding from one of my knuckles. And I'm like, when did I do that? I don't even remember, like, it wasn't even bad enough for my mind to be like, hey, you should stop the bleeding now. And I'm like, oh, (laughs) my eyes are like, oh, you're bleeding, not my hand. I'm like, hey, we're hurting here. And it's because I've been through some things. (laughs) You know, I I had, I did teething myself, and then I I had other trials that happened. And so uh, I've seen a thing or two, I've been through a thing or two, and I've seen God's faithfulness and experienced God's faithfulness. But not, notice not only what it is, but what it does. 
there, he says that the testing of your faith, it produces something. Uh, it's produce is endurance or patience. So if, if a trial were a tree, the fruit that it bears, that it's hanging on there, what it's producing, the produce is patience and or endurance, depending on your translation. Notice what he says there again in verse three and four, uh, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience, but let patience have its perfect work uh, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. And so there's a few interesting things that are there. Uh, first, that uh, at the beginning of the trial, uh, there's something you don't have that at the end of the trial, you do have. You go from lacking something to gaining something. And in fact, he uses that language, right? That you may be complete, lacking nothing. That means at the beginning of the trial, you were lacking something and this trial allowed you to gain it. It produced something in you. It produced something for you. Uh, he says that it produces patience. And sometimes that same word is translated endurance, uh, something that can only come through hard times. Uh, the endurance for uh, a runner comes from many miles run beforehand. Uh, as a long distance runner, uh, I would run lots and lots of miles before the season even started. And then I would run a whole lot more miles before my race so that by the time I ran my first race, I'd already run several hundred miles so I can run my one mile race well with endurance. For that one race to be run well, many other trials preceded it. And uh, the endurance that we gain only comes through the hard times. But in fact, uh, Paul describes a similar time in his own life and in the life of the Corinthians. He writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. And there's a few things in that that he's saying that he, James is also saying, but I think he, he says it a little clearer. He says, when we're in those places of hardships and trials where we need God's comfort, it's not somebody else other than God that's comforting us. It is God himself who comforts us. And the comfort with which he comforts us is sufficient for us. And beyond sufficient for us, it's sufficient through us. He says that the comfort with which we are comforted enables us to comfort others who are in, in any trouble. Notice that he, he said that, uh, that we may be able, which means before the trial and before the comfort was received, we were unable. In the same way, James says that this trial that you're experiencing is going to have produce. It's going to produce patience and endurance in your life. It's going to complete you in a way that you were incomplete before. It's working for you and not against you. Paul, when he was in a very similar place, enduring something he didn't want to endure, did what we ought to do, and that was pray. And he prayed to the Lord three times. Lord, would you take this thorn in the flesh away from me? Whatever that is, it doesn't sound comfy. And I would pray praying the same thing <laughs> as well. The Lord answered him uh, in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, he says, uh, and he, the Lord, answered me, that's Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. 
God didn't deliver him from the trial, but God gave him grace sufficient for the trial. And uh, when we need endurance for a trial, all we need to bring to the table is weakness. And by God's grace, he will provide the strength. So if we can bring, bring, bring the weakness to the Lord, he will bring his strength in those times. And isn't that good news? When I first read that verse, I was like, man, that makes me like a spiritual Superman. Like I bring all of the weakness. I'm profoundly qualified for this. <laughs> and then God brings all of the strengths. How does this happen? How do we do this? Like, what, how, does, how does this transfer work? Um, he, he says it right there um, in verse 5 through 8, um, and it's what was modeled by the Apostle Paul uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We do this by prayer. Notice again there in verse 5, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Uh, when you don't know what to do, but you need to do something, what should you do? Ask God for wisdom. God has the wisdom for every moment. God knows what you need to do. Uh, in my regular reading through scripture this week, um, there was a chapter uh, where in David's life, he was uh, going to go out to battle and he asked the Lord, shall we go out? And the Lord's like, you shall go out. And he's like, will we be victorious? He's like, you're going to be victorious. And then like the next day, the same people come out and he's like, shall we go out? And the Lord's like, you shall not go out. <laughs> oh, okay, different direction. <laughs> you shall go around the other way. I'm like, oh, okay, well, well, then we'll go around the other way. And then the Lord, but it was a day-to-day -day asking the Lord, Lord, where do we go today? What is the next wise step? And that was David, the man after God's own heart, the king of the country, the guy who was supposed to know what to do. And you know what? He did know what to do. He knew he needed to pray. <laughs> he knew who had the wisdom for the next wise step, and it was the Lord. And the Lord has the wisdom that we lack in the trials that we're in. The next wise step will come from the Lord. I like how he says, you will be complete, lacking nothing. And then he immediately goes into verse 5, telling us what we lack, <laughs> just in case we didn't get the hint. And if you lack wisdom, hint, 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 <laughs> let him ask from the Lord, hint, 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 hint. The Lord does not lack in wisdom, and the Lord is not stingy in giving wisdom. The Lord gives to all, liberally and without reproach. He's not going to make fun of you. I'm not sure if you've ever had to do this before where you're new at a job or you're doing a job you've never done before. You're like, I don't know what to do here. Um, so here we go. And then you ask somebody else and they make fun of you for not knowing the basics of what you need to do. That's not the Lord. The Lord knows you don't know. The Lord knows that he knows. And the Lord's waiting for you to ask him what he knows about what you should do next. It's more like when my kids come to me and they're like, hey, can we take the groceries out? And I'm like, I'm sure, sure, go ahead. And they grab the one that has the two gallons of milk in it. I'm like, I'm waiting for them to ask. <laughs> I know they can't do it. Like, <laughs> I'm waiting for them to ask for wisdom from dad. Hey, dad, can you help me with this? I'm like, I certainly can. <laughs> my strength is sufficient for their weakness as long as it's just two gallons of milk. Our Father in heaven, his strength is much greater than mine, so we can be thankful for that. Asking God for wisdom in trials is what we need to do when we're in the trial. 
Uh, and even in the midst of that trial, while we're waiting for the wisdom, as was reflected in Art's uh, message to us and uh, the communications that we've gotten from him, uh, we can have peace in the midst of those trials. Paul, in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, reminds us to be anxious for nothing. Uh, and, you know, some of us uh, have the unique gift of being anxious for almost anything. Like I can be anxious while eating my breakfast in the morning. I can be anxious while driving to work. I can be anxious and be having a conversation with somebody else. And I can be anxious always for everything. Um, but Paul tells us to be anxious for nothing. And instead of that anxiousness, to be in, uh, but in, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. So in the same way that we can be anxious and eat our breakfast and have conversations and drive to work, we can be in fellowship with the Lord at the same time. And it's just including God and that conversation with yourself about the problem. Before, when the anxiety is there, we're there, the problem is there, and God is not there. When we invite God into the problem, God's there, the problem's still there, and we're there. But now we've got God and his wisdom and his power and his strength, and it's different and we exchange the anxieties for God's peace. Not because we know how it's going to work out, but because we have the one who can work it out. Notice what he says after, you know, making your request known to God. He says the result of that is, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind through Christ Jesus. It's a, it's a peace which surpasses understanding, and that is in the same way that my kids don't know how things are going to work out, but they trust me to work it out for them. We trust the Lord. We don't know how it's going to work out, but we trust that the Lord does and that he will, in his wisdom and by his strength, work it out. And that peace will guard our hearts and our minds from trying to figure out these things apart from him. This is the peace that we have that was one of the things that makes us different than the world around us. If you're in the world and you have your eyes and ears open, you ought to be anxious about many things. Uh, but if you're a believer and you see God's hand in and through the issue, you're going to see the same thing, but you're going to see a lot more. There was a time in the prophet Elisha's life where he had a servant uh, wake him up in the morning, and he was freaking out because the king, who uh, he had not said very nice things about, uh, sent many troops to surround the, the house that he was in. And the servant woke up that morning and looked out the window, and all he saw was the king's army and you know chariots and horses and, you know, all of these guys surrounding the house, and he's like, we're dead. <laughs> we're going to die. Today is the day that we go to see the Lord, 100% sure. No questions asked. This is freaking out anxiety. And the prophet, when he woke up, he was like, Lord, open his eyes to see. And the Lord answered that prayer. And when his eyes were open, he saw the spiritual reality and not just the physical the spiritual reality was around the army surrounding them was the Lord's army surrounding that one, which if you know your circles, it's going to be bigger. <laughs> and it's the Lord's army. One angel took out like 185,000 people in one night, and like there's a whole bunch of them now. So, you know, <laughs> he wasn't stressed about it. He's like, you know, Lord, open his eyes. There was a peace in his heart because he understood the spiritual reality was greater than the physical reality. It didn't say that the physical reality was not there or that it was not significant, but it was insignificant compared to what the Lord was doing. And in the same way, when we take our cares and cast them on the Lord because he cares for us, the spiritual realities become 
greater than and apparent to us. We get to see God's hand at work in us and through us because uh, in Scripture, we're reminded in, uh, I believe it's Second uh, Chronicles 16, 9, that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. You know, God is the one who's seeking to show himself strong. Sometimes we think we're the one who has to try to get God's attention. Like, hey, God, 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 over here, I need some strength in it. I, I want you to show yourself strong on my behalf. Before you sought him, he was seeking you for the very purpose of showing himself strong on your behalf. And those whose hearts are loyal to the Lord cry out to the Lord for that strength. So what are we supposed to do? Ask God and it will be given. Again, Peter says in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 and 7, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will, uh, that he may exalt you in due time, casting your cares upon you for he cares for you. It's one thing to try to get the attention of your boss when you're going through a rough time at work <laughs> and he, he's not even on your radar. I had to call my, my district manager this week and let him know uh, the store is fine. I have outside life things that are happening right now that you should be aware of. <laughs> I had to put it on his radar. Uh, when it comes to the Lord, when we're casting our cares upon him, he's already aware and he already cares. I, was, I had to hope that my district manager would care, and he did, by God's grace. Um, but we never have to hope that God cares. He does care. And because of that, that gives us confidence to cast our cares upon him. James reminds us, though, that when we come, we must come in faith. Uh, notice what he says there uh, in the rest of uh, verses 6 through 8. He says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. And all that means is we're coming to the Lord and we believe that, I don't know what you're going to do, Lord, but I believe you know what you need to do. Uh, I don't know what kind of strength I need, but I believe you have the strength that I need. I'm reminded of the man that uh, Jesus asked, do you believe that I can do this miracle in your life? And I, I, can, I can relate to this guy because his response uh, was immediately the father of the child cried out uh, and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I want to believe more, that you can do more, and it's hard at times. And when we come to the Lord, that's an act of faith, that I believe he can do something about it, that he, can, he not only cares, but he's capable and competent to do what needs to be done. And so when we come to the Lord, we come uh, full of belief. There was a time in the disciples' lives when they uh, were on the sea uh, and Jesus was asleep in the boat. And when Jesus woke up, uh, his disciples were freaking out. And the first things he heard out of their mouth was, Lord, do you not care that we are perishing? They believed that possibly, just maybe the Lord would care that they're perishing, but they certainly didn't believe he could do anything about the situation they were in. And Jesus, it's quite remarkable, uh, it says he was astonished. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Now, if you woke me up in the middle of the sea and the boat was filling up with water, the first thing I would be amazed at is that I'm about to die. <laughs> I would be shocked that there was a storm at all. I, I went to sleep. Everything was peaceful, peaceful. When I woke up, the boat is half full of water. The guys who are bailing it out aren't doing a sufficient job. 
we're all going to drown here in short order. This is like the current situation. But when he woke up, he was not surprised by the storm. He was surprised by their lack of faith. In our lives, though the trials may be surprising to us, they are not surprising to the Lord. And what he desires from us in those moments is faith. And you know what? Jesus was uh, exceedingly gracious to his disciples. He's, he, he did rebuke them for their lack of faith, um, but he immediately calmed the storm. Uh, they appealed to him. They prayed. They appealed based on his care, not necessarily his capabilities. And he did care for them. They were casting their cares upon him. Not that they thought he could do anything about it, but they at least did that part right. <laughs> and God took the little bit that they had and did something with it. And he answered the prayer. Even though their prayer wasn't specific, do this thing, he still did the thing that needed to be done. <laughs> right? He expressed his care, and he also demonstrated his ability to rule over nature, to do what only God can do. And so God was with them, but we're told in that story that they weren't the only ones in that storm. When they left, there was many other boats with them. And this is the part that makes it unique for us as believers, is in that storm, they weren't the only boat, but that was the only boat that had Jesus on board. And when we're going through trials, just like the rest of the world goes through trials, we may be in the same kind of storm, but we're on a different boat because we have Jesus. We have Jesus to call on. We have Jesus to cast our cares upon, and he can calm the storm that we're in. We may be in the same storm, but we're in a different boat. And that's how we have fellowship as one another with believers. When we're going through hard times, we're going through those together, and together we cast our cares upon the Lord. This kind of prayer, though, it has a requirement, and that requirement is humility. My last and final point in verses 9 through 11 is prayer and trial requires humility but will leave you exalted. Prayer and trial requires humility but leaves you exalted. Notice what he says there in verse 9. Let the lowly brethren glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. And so he, he draws this comparison and this contrast between two kinds of people, and I believe it's still in the same context of trials and asking for wisdom and having the strength you need to do what you need to do. And he contrasts both the poor and the rich, and he puts them both in the same category, though. They both experience trials. Sometimes if you're poor, you think, man, if I were rich, I wouldn't experience trials. And if you've been poor and then be, you know, came into some money, you realize... Now I feel like I've got more trials, and I wish I was poor and I didn't have so many. <laughs> and, you know, here's, here's the thing. Uh, money is not the problem, and money is not the solution. But some, sometimes money can distract us from what the real solution is. The advantage the poor has over the rich, and Jesus even said this in the Sermon on the Mount, is blessed are the poor in spirit. Those who know that they don't have what they need they're blessed because they go to the one who has what they need. Uh, Jesus, when he was uh, writing a letter to the church um, in Revelation uh, chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, he describes a church who thought they were rich and because of their riches would, weren't seeking the Lord like they ought to have been. They had a wrong view of themselves because of the material wealth that they had. Uh, Revelation 3, verse 17 and 18, he says, "'Because you say, I am rich,' I have become wealthy, I have need of nothing, and do not know, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Now, if I were to describe those two group of people, 
I don't think you'd be thinking about the same person. But God, through Jesus in writing this letter, is talking to the same person. This person thinks, you know, I'm rich, I've become wealthy, and I have need of nothing. And the reality is, where they're actually at, is that they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. (laughs) The poor, who knows that they are poor, goes to the Lord as the first resource, because it's the only resource they have. And they're advantaged because of that. They start off, as the Bible describes, humble. Humble sometimes gets a bad connotation in the world in which we live, but it's actually a very good thing. Uh, Scripturally speaking, humility is just being aware of your own needs. Being uh, conscious of your own defects is how uh, an older dictionary used to describe it. And that is, I used to describe this to my junior hires when I was a junior high youth pastor. If you had one leg and the other leg was, you know, cut off at the knee, and you weren't aware that you only had one leg, if you tried to go for a walk, how far would you get? About a half step, because pride comes before the fall. Pride is thinking more of yourself than you ought to. I think I've got two legs, but when you have one, you're going down. Humility says, I know I only have one leg. You're going to get much further if you're humble, (laughs) right? I know this is, I'm conscious of my limitations. I know of my own weaknesses, And in this regard, the poor um, here is said to be at an advantage because they already know they only have the Lord. And the danger that the rich are in is that they might try something else first. They may, in their own resources, try to tell God, I've got this one. Jesus in uh, Revelation 3, verse 18, this is his counsel. He says, I counsel you, buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. Anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. So the poor who start off humble get exalted right away. Remember what we read there in uh, First Peter, that uh, before you cast your cares on the Lord, uh, that the whole sentence in First Peter chapter five verse six, he says, "Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting your cares upon Him, for He cares for you." But it starts off by humbling yourself, by going to the Lord and saying, "I don't got this. I can't do this." That's what it means to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. And you know what He does is when He gives you His strength, um, Peter describes it as, as that He may exalt you. That's not God worshiping you. That's God lifting you up. That's dad grabbing the bag of milk (laughs) from his son who can't lift it up. But the exaltation comes after the humiliation, if you would. And in this regard, uh, the rich are in one of two spots. Either they're going to be the humbled rich, where they show and they demonstrate that their riches are no help in times of trouble, um, which can be humbling, right? That's what happened to Pharaoh when he was letting the people of Israel go. He was humbled. Strongest military in the world, couldn't keep a bunch of slaves in his own country. Why? Because God took him. He was humbled because he didn't humble himself. He was given the opportunity to humble himself. You're like, you know, who is this God? Well, I believe he is actually the God, and he could have glorified God and willingly letting the kids, the children of Israel go. But instead, God demonstrated his strength on behalf of the children of Israel who couldn't do it themselves. But God did it anyway. And because of that, he was humbled. The dangerous spot is that the unhumbled rich fade away in their pursuits of trying to meet their needs that only God can supply according to their own riches and glory. 
that they would think of themselves like those in the book of Revelation who thought of themselves, that I am rich, I am wealthy, and I have need of nothing. We need the Lord. God gives us trials to remind us that we need the Lord. When times are good, we need the Lord. When times are hard, then we know we need the Lord. (laughs) If you're a new believer, uh, know that trials are a part of the normal Christian life and that trials actually help you grow. It's going to produce something good in your life. Asking God for help is what you're supposed to do in a trial. That's what we're told. Uh, If you're a mature believer, uh, you know these things, but we still need to do them. And sometimes we forget. And if you're a mature believer and you have a a newer believer in your life who's experiencing it for the first time, like that baby with the the teething pain, first time experiencing this kind of pain, uh, you know, that's the worst thing they've ever experienced. And it's our duty as mature believers to comfort them in that and point them to the Lord and say, you know, I know it's hard, but this is good. This is going to produce good. It's our duty to remind them that this is an opportunity for God to show himself strong on their behalf. If you're not a believer here this morning, uh, in this world, you will have tribulation. Hard times are guaranteed. If you're not in the middle of it now, you will be soon. And the, the need and the extent of the need to which you have is a need that only God is meant to satisfy. But here's the thing. He's looking to meet those needs. He wants to be the one that you seek first. I'm going to invite uh, the worship team uh, back up here, and uh, we're going to worship uh, the Lord in a closing song. After the song, I'm going to invite some uh, men and women forward to uh, pray with us. If you have any uh, desire to pray or to be prayed for, uh, I want uh, no one to leave this place without having the opportunity uh, to pray with one another as Scripture uh, has encouraged us, as I've encouraged us even before we got into the word this morning, that the one thing we can do and should do and ought to be doing in this season is praying for ourselves, praying for one another, certainly praying for our pastor and his wife and for those who have been given charge to lead uh, this fellowship. But here's the good news. God has the wisdom that we need. God's desire to show his strength on our behalf is greater than our desire for him to show his strength on our behalf. God is faithful. God is uh, able to calm the storm with a word. So we can have great confidence in him. But it is the desire of God's heart that we seek him, that we call on him, that we cast our cares upon him. So as we sing this last song, let's make this last song a prayer. Uh, And as we sing this song, I'm going to ask those who who I've spoken to before to uh, come up uh, to pray for you. And in our closing song, I'll close us out in a prayer afterward, and we'll just take some time to pray with one another and for one another. So let's do that together.